You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, as, as we tackle chapter 13, the title of our message this morning is, is The Masked Monarch. The Masked Monarch. Now, some of you have heard of the TV show The Masked Singer, right? Uh, you know, this, this, this top secret singing competition where celebrities face off and, in full costume and sing. And, of course, the, the judges have to guess who is really behind that mask, right? And, of course, they're always surprised to discover who's under the costume. Well, this morning we meet not the masked singer, but the masked monarch. Now, by the way, speaking of masks, how many of you, you know, during COVID, and I say during COVID, you know, uh, obviously COVID is still a thing because I just got done explaining to you how I'm recovering from COVID. Uh, but, you know, how many of you, you know, were surprised during this time to discover what people actually look like under their mask, right? You know, I mean, you know, they'll put the mask on, you're like, that's an attractive person. You know, that guy kind of looks like Tom Cruise behind that mask, takes it off, you're like, no, that's Tommy Boy. Uh, <laughs> Well, this morning, uh, King Saul's mask is, is starting to come off, and, and we're kind of surprised with what we see. Because, you know, up until now, you know, uh, Saul looked good on the outside. I mean, the Bible describes Saul as being tall, dark, and handsome. You know, he, he seemed like he was humble. Uh, but, but now, the mask is starting to come off, and, and, and Saul doesn't, doesn't, doesn't look as, as, as regal and humble as he made himself out to be. We're starting to see his true colors. So now in chapter 13, the first four verses reveal some king-sized character flaws. And so verse 1, it says, Saul lived for one year, then became the king, and when he'd reigned for two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash. Now, by the way, every time I see Michmash, I want to add paddywhack, give the dog a bone. Um, <laughs> it's just me. It's my COVID brain. Uh, 2,000 years were, I'm sorry, 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gebeah of Benjamin. Now the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his own tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gebeah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard that it was said that Saul defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that, that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now, right away, there's kind of a discrepancy, kind of a problem, and what I mean by that is, is I want you to go back and look at verse 1. In verse 1, we notice that it says, Saul lived for one year, then became the king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Now, that's how that reads in the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible. But maybe you're reading from the New Living Translation. If so, yours would say this. It would say, Saul was 30 years old when he became the king and he reigned for two years. Now, to complicate matters even more, the, the actual Hebrew text would say this. It would say that Saul was one year old when he became the king. Now, I was not a math major, but, but that's not adding up. I mean, the math is not mathing, if you know what I mean. And so we read that and we're like, you know, <laughs> what gives? What's going on with that? We see this is what, what we believe to be what we'd call a, a quote-unquote scribal error. Here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is, is keep in mind, we do not actually have the original manuscript that, that Samuel himself wrote with his very own hand. We don't have that. What we have are, are thousands of, 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 of handwritten copies that were written by the hands of scribes. 
And so, uh, more than likely, what had happened is, 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 is one of these early scribes who was, who was copying the original document that Samuel actually wrote with his own hand, the scribe must have accidentally left out Saul's actual age as he was copying it. And now, uh, years and years later, the Greek uh, manuscripts tried to correct that by inserting what they thought his age might have been. And so that's why many copies of the Greek Septuagint, now by the way, the Greek Septuagint, that's just the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so uh, we have many copies of the Greek Septuagint that say Saul began to reign when he was 30 years old. That's where translations like the New Living Translation come up with their number. But regardless of all of that, regardless of, of how old he might have been, whether he was 30 years old or 40 years old, we definitely know he wasn't just one years old when he became the king. But regardless of that, the point that the text is trying to make is simply this. The text is just trying to make the point that in chapter 13, he's now been the king for two years. He's been reigning. He's been sitting on the throne and, and, and for, for two years. And so just after, after two years of sitting on the throne, we're already starting to see some cracks in his kingly character. In fact, one of the first things that, we, that, we, that, that, that stand out with Saul is, is how much his influence has diminished in just two years. You know, remember, back in chapter 11, we, when, when the Ammonites were invading the Jewish town of Jabesh-Gilead, we saw in chapter 11 that Saul was able to muster and recruit an army of 330,000 soldiers. 330,000 soldiers. Now, just two years later, he barely has 3,000. I mean, listen, that's, that's less than, than, than 1% of the army he had just two years ago. And so he has 3,000 soldiers, 2,000 go with Saul, 1,000 go with his son Jonathan, but, but now in chapter 13, there's a new enemy. It's no longer the Ammonites like it was in chapter 11, now it's the Philistines. So they divide up the army into two camps, uh, uh, 2,000 go with Saul to, uh, to, to, to Michmash, and, 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 and 1,000 go with Jonathan to Gebeah. And then we see that, 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 that Jonathan is victorious. He gets the battle. He, he wins the battle. And yet what we see is that, is that Jonathan's victory reveals another flaw in the king's character. Because as, as Jonathan gets the victory, what happens? Saul pulls out the trumpet. Saul blasts the trumpet. And then verse 3 says, let the Hebrews hear. Now, by the way, when we read that, we read it almost as if it's like a, a presidential address. You know, every now and then, from time to time, uh, whoever the president happens to be that year, the president will come on national television and give a presidential address and often start it by saying what he'll say, my fellow Americans. And so we kind of read this passage the same way. We read it as if Saul was saying, you know what, my fellow Hebrews. But many Bible commentators, including Warren Wiersbe and many, many others, point out that the term Hebrews was actually, at least in those ancient days, a term that was being used by the enemies of the, of the people of Israel, the Jewish people. You see, in those ancient days, the Jewish people just simply called themselves exactly that, the Jewish people, or the people of Israel, the Israelites. But it was the enemies of Israel that would refer to them in a derogatory way and call them the Hebrews. So it was a term of contempt. You know, for example, in Genesis 43, we read how, how the Egyptians viewed themselves as being too good to eat with the Hebrews. And then in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, we read that it was an Egyptian who beat up one of the Hebrews. 
And so what we see is, is, that, is that after two years of sitting on the throne, Saul is treating his own people the way his enemies do. And I might explain his, his approval rating, his popularity rating, why it's so low. It might explain why, 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 why he's only able to recruit 3,000 soldiers when just two years ago he had 330,000 soldiers. So Saul hears that his son Jonathan wins the battle, defeats the Philistines. So he pulls out the trumpet, he blasts the trumpet, he says, let the Hebrews hear. And then in verse 4 it goes on and it says, and all of Israel heard it was said that Saul defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Now notice, that should, should say Jonathan defeated the Philistines. That's not what it says. In fact, one paraphrase called God's Word Translation renders it this way. It says, so all Israel listened. I, Saul, have defeated the Philistine troops. What was Saul doing? He was blowing his own horn. He was tooting his own horn. I think Will Rogers was right several decades ago when he said, get someone else to blow your horn for you and the sound will go twice as far. Proverbs 27, verse 2, it says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. <laughs> Saul's problem was that he couldn't compliment himself enough. And so we're getting a glimpse at a kind of a personality trait, a really a personality flaw. You know, Saul was, was, was the kind of guy who couldn't stand to see someone else get the praise that he was rightfully trying to steal. <laughs> and so he's taking credit for his son's victory. Or, or, as, or as Skip Isaac put it, this was military plagiarism. <laughs> and, and, and yet this is revealing not, not just a, a character flaw in Saul as the king, as the leader of the nation, but it's also revealing a, a, a character flaw as a father, as a dad. He's not cheering his son, he's jealous of his son. This isn't a proud dad on the sidelines going, you know, that's my boy. That's my son who just won the victory. No, this is the dad who's taking his son's trophies and putting his own name on them. He, he's, he's stealing his son's credit, his son's glory. He's, he's stealing Jonathan's shine. And so now with that, verses 5 through 7, we see that while, while Saul's blowing, he's blowing his own horn, while he's blowing, the enemy's growing. Verse 5, and the Philistines mustered to fight with, the, with, with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came to an, to the, and encamped at Michmash to, to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some of the Hebrews crossed the, the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people followed him trembling. So we see this picture. On the one hand, Saul's blowing his own trumpet. He's throwing a party for one. And as he's celebrating and, and throwing this party, meanwhile, the Philistines are amassing an army so vast that, 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 that they couldn't even be numbered. It says that, they, that, that, that their footmen, their, 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 their uh, uh, infantry soldiers, were, were so numerous, they were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, by the way, earlier, when it says that Saul blew the trumpet, he blasted the trumpet and says, let the Hebrews hear, and it says that the people were hearing how Saul had supposedly defeated the Philistines. Verse 4 tells us that they were also hearing something else. 
What they were also hearing, according to verse 4, was that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. The Living Bible renders it this way. It says, the army of Israel stank to high heaven as far as the Philistines were concerned. Like how one commentator put it, he says, what this small victory had accomplished was about the same as throwing a rock at a hornet's nest. Now the Philistines are hopping mad, and Israel had become a stink in their nostrils. So here's the king. He's celebrating. He's boasting. He's bragging. Meanwhile, the army of the Philistines is growing and growing and growing. And the people of Israel, they, they see this, and, and what's their reaction? Well, in verse 6, it says, when the men of Israel saw that they, that, that they were in trouble, it says they were hard-pressed, what did they do? It says, they hid themselves. They went into hiding. You know, they, they hid in caves and holes and rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, wells. They went into hiding. They, they, they saw that they were outnumbered, they were outgunned, and so they went into hiding. And it's been well said that the people tend to take on the personality of their leaders. That's what's happening in this chapter. Do you remember just a couple of chapters ago when the people of Israel were looking to make Saul their king? What was he doing? He was hiding, hiding behind the luggage. Fast forward a couple of years later, what's happening? The people are playing follow the leader. They found him in hiding, and now they go into hiding. And in verse 8 through 18, we have panic at Gilgal. Some of you have heard of panic at the disco. This is panic at Gilgal. Those that know, you know. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he'd finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, Oh, when, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appoint, with the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against, against me at Gilgal and I have not sought favor from the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then... The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gebeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Notice, they've shrunk from 3,000 to 600. Verse 16, and Saul and, and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed at Gebeah of Benjamin, and the, but, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And the raiders of the camp of the Philistines came out in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the, to the land of Shual. Another company turned towards Bet Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. So we put this all together. We see that, that, that Samuel had first told Saul to wait for seven days. Don't do anything. Just wait on the Lord. And, and, and then we need, to, we, need to, we need to seek God's counsel. We need to seek God's wisdom. And then after we offer sacrifice and seek God's wisdom, then you can launch an attack. Then you can go out into battle. 
Well, meanwhile, uh, Saul's forces are, are dropping like flies, right? I mean, we just mentioned that they've gone down from 3,000 to just 600. And so now finally, the seventh day finally comes, and, and Saul can't wait anymore. He panics, he takes matters into his own hands, and he's like, you know what? I don't need to wait for the priest to show up to offer the sacrifices. I can do it myself. I mean, after all, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want to do. So he offers a sacrifice. And, and no sooner than he finishes the sacrifice, that's when Samuel shows up. By the way, ever wonder why God waits till the 11th hour to show up? Ever wonder why, why, why God often waits till the last minute before he steps in? I mean, is he just messing with us? Is he just, is he just teasing us? I like how Bible commentator John Corson put it when he said, he takes us right down to the wire, not to taunt, but to train. There's a lesson. It's to teach us something. There's a lesson in it for us. And perhaps the lesson for Saul was simply this. Perhaps his lesson was obedience requires patience. You have to wait upon the Lord. But he didn't wait upon the Lord. He panicked. He took matters into his own hands. He tried to force things. And now he gets caught red-handed by Samuel. <laughs> and he's caught red-handed, and yet we see that Saul's making excuses rather than making confessions. He's making excuses. You know, instead of confessing that he was wrong, he gives three excuses. We see him in verse 11. After Samuel says, what have you done? He says, number one, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, number two, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and number three, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. <laughs> Warren Wiersbe had said, people who, who are good at making excuses are seldom good at anything else. So he is, he's, he's making excuse after excuse. You know, excuse number one, he's like, you know, the enemy was coming and, and, and the pressure was mounting and hey, you know, it's not my fault. I was under a lot of pressure. A lot of us today use that excuse. You know, we snap when we're driving. You know, this happens or that happens, and we lose it here, we lose it there, and what do we say? You know, it's, you know I was under a lot of pressure. Excuse number two, he says, you know, <laughs> he says, my soldiers are going AWOL. They're leaving left and right. I mean, if I would have waited any longer, no one would have been left. I mean, I had to do something. I had to act soon before, before there was nothing left, before it was too late. And excuse number three, you were taking too long. You said you'd be here in seven days, but I kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and finally, I started to think, you know what? You're never going to come. You're, you're never going to show up. Now, by the way, doesn't that sound a lot like the excuse that the people of Israel tried to give when they tried to replace Moses with his brother Aaron? You remember the story? Moses had been up on, on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights receiving revelation from God. So he's up there, and, and, and he's been gone for 40 days. 40 nights have been gone so long, the people are getting worried. They're getting tired of waiting. And after a while, they literally say, you know what? Something must have happened to Moses. He's never coming back. And that's when they elect Aaron to be their new leader. And then they force Aaron to, to make a new god for them to worship. So Aaron takes all their golden earrings, melts them down in the fire, and, and turns it into a golden calf. And that's when Moses comes back. So just like Samuel caught Saul red-handed, Moses catches Aaron red-handed, and he's like, you done messed up, Aaron. <laughs> he's like, what are you doing? He's like, well, you know, Aaron's like, well, it's not my fault. You know, the people made me do it. 
And, and, and he's like, you know, besides, you know, it's really not my fault because all I did was just put the gold earrings into the fire and poof, out came this golden calf. It was magic. And so it's basically the same kind of excuse that, 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 that Saul's trying to give. It's like, you know, it's not my fault. I was under pressure and the enemy was coming. And besides, you didn't show up on time. You weren't even there. And so when you think about it, it's not my fault. It's your fault because you weren't even there. And so instead of making confession, he was making excuses. And so now as we pick it up in verse 19 to the end, what we have in these verses are, are, are the lessons that are revealed when Saul's failures are unmasked. Verse 19, <coughs> right after this drink. You have to admit, for getting over COVID, my voice is holding out. Anyway, uh, verse 19. Now, there are no blacksmiths to be found throughout the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And, and, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares or for the mattocks, and, and a third of a shekel for sharpening axes and setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Paddywhack, give the dog a bone. Now, history tells us, by the way, um, that, 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 that the Philistines were the only people at that time in history in the entire Middle East who had the technology to use iron and turn it into weapons and tools. Now, along with that, we just read that they also had a monopoly on the blacksmith market. And so basically, all the other nations that would include Israel, they were still using bronze to make their weapons and to make their tools. Now, bronze, as you know, is, is, is much more fragile and, and, and brittle. And so more than likely, what had happened was, was the weapons of Israel had, had shattered and rusted and crumbled by this point. And so now all they had left were their farm tools, pickaxes and, and backhoes and whatever. But again, the problem, as, as we mentioned, is that the Philistines own all the, all, all, all the, all the blacksmith shops. And so not only could they not make their own weapons or buy new weapons, but they couldn't even, you know, go to the blacksmith and sharpen their farm tools and, and convert them into weapons. Because again, the Philistines owned all the blacksmith shops. And so the picture here is, is, is getting bleak. You know, we, we, we've already seen at this point that, you know, we, we, we've got, we, 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 Saul's troops have gone down from 3,000 to just 600 so there's Saul, he has a sword. Jonathan, he has a sword. There's 600 soldiers against the Philistines who have 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and so many foot soldiers, so many inf infantrymen, you can't even count them. It's as futile as trying to count the sand on the seashore. And, and, and again, the only people have weapons, Jonathan and Saul. Everybody else, shovels, rakes, sticks, you see, what we're saying was, was, that, was that Saul was up you-know-what creek without a paddle. This, this is the very definition of impossible odds. The very definition of impossible odds. And yet what we have in this morning's passage are really a number of failed lessons that Saul could have learned, but he failed to learn. Lessons he could have learned, but he failed to learn. Lesson number one that he could have learned, but he failed to learn, is that he could have learned that what is impossible for you is possible with God. 
You know, Jesus said in, in Luke 18, 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You know, it's like when, when, when Sarah had overheard uh, God telling Abraham, her husband, that even she in her old age was going to get pregnant and have a son. Now she's eavesdropping. On the other side of the tent, she hears this and she laughs out loud. God catches her and confronts her. And in, and in Genesis 18, 14, he says, Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now this is what we call a rhetorical question. In other words, the answer is in the question, kind of like a grilled cheese sandwich. The recipe is in the name. And by the way, one of the names of, of God in the Bible is El Shaddai. It means God Almighty. That's what God called himself in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. He told Sarah and Abraham what his name is. He says, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Not God Almost Mighty, God Almighty. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Saul could have learned that in this, in this moment. Sure, he was outnumbered. Sure, he was outgunned. But you know what? This was one of those moments where he could have learned that one with God is a majority. He could have learned in that moment that nothing is impossible with God. You're kind of like the story that we read in 2 Kings chapter 6, the story of Elisha and a servant named Gehazi. Just two of them. And, and they are surrounded on every side by the entire Syrian army, thousands of them. So there's just two, Elisha and, and, and Gehazi. And Gehazi is losing heart. He wants to quit. He wants to give up. And that's when we read these words in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16. It says, do not be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. We'll pause. <laughs> Gehazi is doing the math. One plus one <laughs> equals two. He's like, there's thousands of them. This isn't mathing. And then it goes on. And, and, and it says, then Elijah prayed. And the Lord opened his eyes. I'm sorry. Elijah prayed and said, oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Yeah, there might have been thousands of Syrians, but there were hundreds of thousands of angelic hosts. Reminds us of the true story of a missionary named John, John G. Patton. Back in the 1800s, he was, he was a missionary in what were called then the, the New Hybrids Islands. Now today, this area is known as Vanuatu. Uh, but, but in his personal journal, dated New Year's Day, uh, 1861, he records this story. He records how, how a tribe of hundreds of cannibals had, and, and I've shared this story before, how they had surrounded uh, their missionary headquarters. And, and the goal of the, of the cannibals was to, was, to, was to burn out John Patton and his family, burn them out of the camp, and then catch them and, and murder them and then eat them. And so John and his family, they prayed and they prayed. They prayed all night long. They kept praying and kept praying. And finally in the morning, their attackers left and no one was harmed. Now one year later, the chief of the tribe accepts Jesus. He gets born again. He becomes a Christian. So then John asks him, he says, he says why didn't you attack us that night when you had us surrounded? And, and, and the chief answered, said, well, because of your army. He says, what are you talking about? We don't have an army. Oh, yeah, you do. There were hundreds of really big men in shining white gleaming clothing with flaming swords surrounding your camp. So we kept waiting for them to leave, and we waited and waited, and they never left, so we left. Saul could have learned that one with God is a majority, that with God nothing is impossible, but he failed to learn that. Lesson number two that Saul could have learned, that he failed to learn, is that listen, 
The Lord often empowers those who wait. You should write that down. I did, it's in my notes. The Lord empowers those who wait. Saul was told to wait for the Lord, but he failed to wait. He, he got impatient, he, he, he panicked, he took matters into his own hands, and he rushed ahead. But the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, the Bible says those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. He empowers those who wait. You know, Jesus told his disciples to, in Acts chapter 1 to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So the 120 disciples, they, they go to Jerusalem, they're in the upper room, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they keep on waiting, and they keep on waiting, and then suddenly, Holy Spirit comes upon them, and as it says in Acts chapter 1, he came upon them to give them the power to be his witnesses in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He empowers those who wait. Saul could have learned that lesson, but he failed to wait. He panicked and took matters into his own hands. And then finally, Saul learns that he's not God's man for the job. Samuel points out that, 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 that because, because he's seen Saul's true colors, because he's seen the, ma the man who's really behind the mask, God's looking for a new man. God's looking for his replacement. As it says back in verse 14, it says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now, by the way, there's, there's two different ways you can render that phrase. Number one, it could be rendered this way. It could say, uh, a man after his heart is a man who, who values what God values, who, who loves what God loves, who cares about the things that God cares about. Or number two, it could be rendered, a man who chases after God. So think about it. Saul valued the things of the world. He, he valued the praise of the world, the glory of the world. He valued chasing after victories and chasing after fame and chasing after recognition. But listen, God was looking for a man who was chasing after him. And by the way, that's still exactly the kind of man and woman God's looking for today. He's searching and seeking, not for those who are looking to make their name great, but looking to make his name great. I'm reminded of a, a, of a scholar by the name of William Kelly back in the 1800s. At that time, one of the most world-renowned scholars, many were seeking after him, in fact, so much so that Trinity College offered him a, a, a job to, to become one of their professors, knowing that it would bolster their college. So they offer him this job, he prays about it, and turns and says no. And they said, well, well, well Dr. Kelly, aren't you interested in making a name for yourself in this world? And he smiled and said, which world, gentlemen? This one or that one? Your world or his world? Now, fortunately, next week we see that, that, that Jonathan seemed to learn what his father failed to learn. But that's next week. For now, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Your word that reminds us that there's nothing too hard for you. You are not God almost mighty. You are God almighty. There's nothing in our life that's stronger than you. There's nothing that we're facing that can outmatch you. The depression, the anxiety, the fear, the loneliness, the failure, 
Whatever it is that's gripped a hold of us is not stronger than the grip you have on us. Because the Bible says that God so loves those who are called according to him that they cannot be removed from his hand. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for your word this morning. Whatever it is that we're facing, whoever it is that we're facing, maybe there's a, 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 a person in our life that's lost and they're, and, they're, and, they're, and they're angry and they're hard. No matter how hard they are, they're not greater than you. Maybe it's our, our, our work environment. Maybe it's sickness. Whatever it is that we're facing, nothing is too hard for Lord. Help us to learn from the failures of Saul that we may bring you glory. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.